millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Deconstructed. I'm Zach Young, producer of the show, filling in for our regular host, Ryan Grimm, this week. Because our topic today is one of Ryan's own recent stories for The Intercept, which I'll be interviewing him about later in the show. On November 9th, 2019, the president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, gave a press conference from El Alto Airport, just outside the capital city of La Paz. Morales had been president of Bolivia since his first election victory in 2005. Back then, he was seen as a key figure in the Marea Rosa, the so-called pink tide of leftist leaders being elected across Latin America. Former Argentine President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner once called Morales one of the three musketeers of the Marea Rosa, the other two being Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, elected in 1998, and Brazil's Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, elected in 2003. Just as importantly, Morales was the first president in Bolivia's two centuries of independence to come from the country's indigenous majority. But by 2019, he was the last major leader of the Maria Rosa left standing. Chavez had died of cancer in 2013 as his country's economy cratered. Lula's Brazil was now in the hands of far-right president Jair Bolsonaro. By the time he gave that press conference from El Alto Airport in November 2019, Morales had already lost control of the government. Three weeks earlier, he had won re-election to a controversial fourth term as president. When the opposition began circulating claims of electoral fraud, protesters poured into the streets of La Paz. In the following days, the situation spiraled out of control as the police and then the military turned against their president. The situation was widely described as a coup, not least by Morales himself. Un golpe de estado contra un gobierno democráticamente electo. He resigned as president on November 10th the same day that the Organization of American States, or OAS, issued a report alleging widespread fraud and irregularities in the election. Later investigations by independent researchers would conclude that the OAS study was rife with inaccuracies and that there was, in fact, no reason to doubt the legitimacy of the result. But at the time, the OAS report was crucial in lending legitimacy to Morales' removal and to the newly installed interim president, Janine Añez. An opposition senator in Bolivia, Janina Añez, has declared herself interim president. As president of the Chamber of Senators, I immediately assume the presidency of the state. Añez wasted no time issuing a decree that preemptively shielded soldiers from prosecution for any actions they might undertake in suppressing opposition to her new government. Predictably, there followed a series of massacres against indigenous Morales supporters. Deadly unrest in Bolivia as security forces opened fire on supporters of exiled former President Evo Morales. Bolivia's wealthy conservative elite resented Morales' redistributive economic policies, which had aimed to reduce poverty in South America's poorest country. But they similarly resented his promotion of traditional Andean culture, which they regarded as anti-Christian. 
As she entered the presidential palace on November 13th, Añez hoisted aloft a massive Bible and declared, La Biblia vuelve a entrar a palacio. The Bible has returned to the palace. Evo Morales was granted asylum in Mexico, and several months later, Bolivia, along with the rest of the world, was plunged into the COVID-19 pandemic. After multiple postponements, new elections were finally held in October of last year. And the winner, by a sizable margin, was Luis Arce, the candidate of Morales' Movement for Socialism Party, known as MAS, or MAS. Almost exactly one year after he went into exile, Evo Morales returned to his home country. And as far as most people were concerned, that was the end of the story. As it turns out, though, in the days following Arce's victory, influential figures both inside and outside of Bolivia were plotting to bring about an alternate history, one in which the Arce government would end before it began. In June, The Intercept obtained audio of phone calls in which a person identified as Bolivian Minister of Defense Luis Fernando Lopez discusses plans to import mercenaries from the U.S. with the goal of overturning the election result. On the calls, Lopez says that, quote, the military high command is already in preliminary talks regarding a potential coup against Arce. Quote, the commander of the armed forces is working on all of this. Right now we have a united armed forces. I guarantee you that this won't fail. In a moment, I'll be joined by our regular host, Ryan Grimm, and his co-reporter on this story, Lawrence Blair, to talk about how they were able to verify the authenticity of these recordings and why Lopez's coup never materialized. But first, we'll discuss the recent assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise by a squad of international mercenaries and what these two stories tell us about the direction of Latin American and Caribbean politics. I'm joined now by our regular host, Ryan Grimm. Uh, Ryan, welcome to your show. It's lovely to be on the show. Uh, and by his co-reporter on the Bolivia story, Lawrence Blair, who's joining us from Dorchester, England. Hi there. Lawrence, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, we were going to go straight into Bolivia, but it's Haiti now that has brought these sorts of covert political operations back into the headlines in a big way. Ryan, can you run us through quickly what happened in Haiti and what we know about what or who might have been behind it? Sure. Well, er earlier this month, the Haitian president, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated by a, a four-hire hit squad. 28 mercenaries, mostly Colombians, are accused of shooting Jovenel Moise at his home earlier this month. A real kind of wake-up call, I think, for the international community that these mercenary schemes, which are often referred to in the media as, as half-baked when they don't come together, can very easily become baked. And several dozen Colombian mercenaries and, and two Americans acting as translators pretended to be DEA agents were able to get into the presidential residence. It appeared that a small number, about roughly seven of the Colombian mercenaries, were in on a, a separate plan from what the rest of the mercenaries had been told they were up to. The Colombian government says only a small group knew of the true nature of the job, and the rest were duped into thinking they were hired to support Haitian security forces. These seven broke off, went to the bedroom, in the presidential compound, presidential residence, and shot and killed Moyes and uh, shot and wounded his wife. It, it appears that this was orchestrated by a kind of rival faction of the Haitian elite. 
we don't know for sure yet. There is a what appears to be a fall guy who has been arrested, who's a South Florida Haitian-born pastor who does not appear to have either the wherewithal or the wealth to have uh, pulled off a scheme that, that was this expensive and, or this sophisticated. And so just this week, the U.S. essentially kind of forced out the prime minister and has given its blessing to a new interim prime minister while the country decides how it's going to get a new president. And all of this casts a, a very new light on the mercenary operation that that wasn't that uh, you two reported on last month in Bolivia. Um, for people who haven't been following this whole saga, there's a lot of names here that can get a bit confusing. Uh, you have in Bolivia, Janine Añez, who was the interim president who was put in place after Evo Morales was deposed in 2019. You have Luis Arce, the candidate of Morales' political party, MAS, the Movement for Socialism, who won the election last year. Uh, and in the audio, you have two main characters. You have a guy named or who is identified as Luis Fernando Lopez, who is the defense minister under the interim government. And then you have Joe Pereira, who is a somewhat mysterious character a uh, former U.S. Army administrator with ties to Bolivian politics and who, in the context of these phone calls, is promising to raise mercenary troops to send to Bolivia. Ryan, who is Joe Pereira and how did he end up on this phone call promising to deliver mercenaries to a high-ranking Bolivian government official? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I think, you know, who who he is kind of would depend on on who he's talking to at at any any given moment, it appears as though he spent a significant amount of time in in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is a kind of a special forces training ground. And from his t time there, he met a number of you know people who were in, involved with special forces, and that enabled him in the future to then kind of claim a connection to the special forces. Uh, at times, he appears to have suggested that he, in fact, himself served in the special forces or, or otherwise served in the U.S. military. We don't have records that indicate that. He is Bolivian-American, born in Bolivia, but he was known as the gringo for <laughs> the reasons that you can you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And he cultivated that image. Like He wanted people to kind of believe that he was an, an American that, that had cachet to it. He became a pastor. He was involved with Herbalife, which has a significant presence in Santa Cruz, which is kind of the conservative, wealthier area of Bolivia, home to a lot of cattle ranching and other interests, and got caught up in some fraud allegations, spent time in jail, appears to have been acquitted, but not necessarily released, and as we understand, is still in prison. So I want to bring your co-reporter, Lawrence Blair, into the conversation. Now, uh, Lawrence, did you have anything to add to what Ryan is saying here about Joe Pereira, this mysterious figure who's at the center of this plot? Yeah, I mean, to, to jump in there, he, you know, we know that he worked at Fort Bragg, which is, you know, this training center for, for SOCOM. And, and, you know, we have documents putting him there in the early, early 2000s. And he's very much played up that, that experience upon returning to Bolivia. The first chunk of evidence which we have are these emails sent by Pereira and by another individual in in, in the U.S. Yeah, between a, a few a few two named individuals who are former 
contractors, one with Blackwater. One is a former Marine who's done work doing diplomatic protection, a guy called uh, David Shearman. The other guy is called Joe Milligan. And they've got a lot of experience in these kind of overseas counterinsurgency missions. The emails we, we, we have and these date from late September last year are effectively talking about sending a couple of hundred, at least 250 mercenaries down to Bolivia from the US to engage in what seems to be a sort of counterinsurgency mission. There's talk about it being politically sensitive. The date is shifted, it's postponed because the elections were repeatedly postponed by Añez. Bolivia postpones general elections for a second time this year. Nueva fecha para las elecciones en Bolivia. Hundreds of people are protesting against the postponement of general elections. In the end, Arce wins the election in late October by a pretty thumping margin, right? He gets about 55% of the vote. A big win for socialists in Bolivia. Luis Arce is set to be the new president. Gana el delfín de Evo. Luis Arce, candidato del partido del expresidente de Bolivia, consigue una contundente... It's a huge repudiation of, of the Añez project, which has been very corrupt, uh, authoritarian. One of her first acts in office was to authorize the military to use deadly force against protests, you know, in the defense of public order. In Cochabamba, military forces opened fire on indigenous pro-Morales demonstrators Friday, killing at least nine people, injuring more than 100. Well, that obviously leads to bloodshed and a, and a few dozen mainly poor and indigenous mass supporters who've come out onto the streets to protest um, what many called a coup in 2019. Uh, they're shot and killed. So Arce wins the election, and it's in the gap between his victory and taking office about three weeks later that we then have these these calls. Yeah, to, to bring people up to speed, we got these audios. And I also had learned that Lawrence had, had made you know, some significant reporting progress on the emails from earlier. And so, you know, even though he had been unable to connect all of those dots and finally published the piece, I, I reached out and said, let's team up here because it, it, it seems like what is in these audios is very neatly complementary of what was in the emails. Because when you only have emails, and you didn't kind of read them yourself on somebody's laptop. It's very difficult to authenticate them without the cooperation of the people who are you know, on the receiving end or the sending end of, of the emails. And, yeah. and there was no reason for people at that time to, to cooperate. But once we had the audio and Shearman and Milligan kind of then understood that, that we had a full picture of what had gone on, then they were willing to corroborate the the emails as as authentic and talk with some openness about the operation yeah yeah definitely i mean on my first pass through with them back in october last year you know i had something unconvincing alibis uh, you know I'm, I'm just a truck driver no i mean i'm a, a scrap metal worker <laughs> then i had a, a sort of a, a threat of legal action from one of them you know i think you're going to be in serious trouble if you release these uh these emails uh, you could be in serious legal uh, liabilities which of course you know um that that obviously sets it's not very truck driver behavior well exactly yeah you know stand standard scrap metal <laughs> guy um you know uh fine upstanding uh, blokes that they they, they they are but anyway so that obviously set alarm bells ringing but like Ryan says, you know, it's these audios that really kind of um, blew it open. And, and you know, the, probably the most incriminating one is a call between 
someone we've identified as Luis Fernando Lopez, who was a former paratrooper trained in Argentina during their Cold War dictatorship, becomes a sort of master of political spin, political PR, uh, mainly based in, in Santa Cruz, the kind of conservative enclave that Ryan uh, mentioned. And he's made defense minister by Añez a few days after her accession to power, if we can put it that way. So he's a key player and, and I think ultra conservative and and in the call we have between him and or the man who we think is him, we're pretty certain is him, he says uh, he's afraid that when the mass come back into power, which they will do, they've, they've won the election, he, which he concedes, they're going to bring Cuban and Venezuelan and Iranian spies and operatives in who are going to train these armed militias of the people who are going to disband the Bolivian armed forces. Quieren reemplazar las fuerzas armadas bolivianas y la policía por milicias cubanas y venezolanas. And he says, you know, even separately from Pereira's offer to bring in, he says up to 10,000 men uh, to, to support this second coup attempt. Lopez says, we're already in discussions about this, me and the commander of the armed forces. You know, we, we don't we don't want the armed forces to, to disappear and, and we're working pretty frantically on this. So there was real a will and intent among certain sectors of that Anya's administration, not necessarily her, we don't know either way, but certainly some, at least one of her cabinet ministers was kind of quite openly plotting to disregard the election uh, in 2020 and install their own president, install a military junta, perhaps. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You mentioned this idea that is pops up a lot on these calls and seems to be very much on the minds of everyone involved that Cubans and Venezuelans are on the verge of being having the, the red carpet rolled out for them by MAS to come into the country and do God knows what, replace the military or overthrow institutions. It sounds very much like a kind of outdated Cold War justification for something like this. You know, we're not we're not in the era when the USSR is pumping a tons of money into Cuba. These are just relatively poor countries with leftist governments that maybe are a little friendlier with Evo Morales, but certainly don't have the wherewithal to invade the country. Ryan, can you talk a little bit about that and how serious they took that? I mean, these are private calls. You know, certainly uh, Lopez is at that moment, you know, concerned for his own future, you know, regardless of whether Iran comes in and, and trains militias, because, you know, he knows he participated in this in this 2019 coup that, that put 
Añez in power and, and made himself defense minister. And he knows that there were people killed in in, in massacres, uh, you know, protesters killed in massacres. He's aware of all of this. And so that alone, you would think, would be enough motivation uh, for for this type of operation. But he, you know, you can't underestimate the the level of paranoia that that exists on the on the uh, the Boli- you know, not just the Bolivian right, but you know, and a, a lot of right wing movements are shot through with uh, paranoia. So so are a decent number of left wing ones. Um, so how much is it? Is this something that he? he tells himself and how much is it something that he believes, you know, it's, it's hard to know, but the fact that this is a private call um, that, that he never wanted to get out. And he's, and he's still making these claims suggests that some of this paranoia is real. You know, uh, Evo, Evo Morales had, um, had said friendly things about Che Guevara uh, who has his own history. You know, Che was killed in Bolivia trying to spark, an insurgency there, Cuban-style revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, among among his little band of guerrillas that that went around Bolivia were the relatives, and and Lawrence may know more about this. Inti and Coco Pereira are two two of the lead characters in if if you've ever read Shay's kind of Bolivian diary. And there's now a, a you know a leading Mas figure, a Pereira, who is a a I believe a brother of of them so the, there's a line yeah i mean the, you know that the, there is a um there is a gevarista movement in in bolivia named after che Guevara, and and you know the, a lot of the mass leading lights including alvaro garcia Linera, who was mm-hmm. uh, was vp for a long time was himself a guerrilla right with the Cataristas. there's a, a shrine on his his death place isn't there there is, yeah. I've, 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 I actually went out there for the 50th anniversary of Shea's murder, which, again, worth saying, historically, this is a fact that the CIA was heavily involved and even, you know, ordered the Bolivian troops to, to pull, pull oh, the trigger. You can read now the cables yeah. to Lyndon Johnson yeah, absolutely. saying, we have someone we believe to be yeah, Shea Guevara. Absolutely. You know, I'd, I'd, really, I'd really, really recommend John Lee Anderson's biography on Shea if anyone wants to know a bit more about that in detail. But I will say this, like, in the village where Shea was was. You know, captured and killed. Even today, I, you know, there are people there who are poor, very rural kind of campesinos. They'll tell you, yeah, Shay's column. They were they were going to murder us all in our beds. They 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 had poisoned bullets. They they were going to massacre babies because the rhetoric, the Cold War rhetoric, the discourse of the of the government at that point, you know, the dictatorship at that point was was that. And I think that strain has remained very present throughout the Americas. This very virulent anti-communism. It's worth saying that Evo Morales himself in exile last January, or January 2020, I should say, had kind of aired the idea of, of you know, creating what he called armed militias of the people along, you know, in the Venezuelan style. Those were his kind of words. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, you know, he obviously, you know, was not best pleased with with the armed forces and 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 their role. And in, that in uh, his... sparked a lot of commentary, and he was forced to sort of try to clarify or walk back. That's right. And and then just briefly on the, on those points, you know, well, a, a he you know then said, oh, well, I was talking about this long tradition in Andean communities of sort of self defense patrols, which you know exist, you know, especially in, in Peru in particular, but also in Bolivia. It would be a weird thing to say if you were proposing that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but 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 also perhaps more importantly, you know, Evo, while he retains a huge amount of let's say respect and, and kind of influence, he's not in the RCA government. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, you, you do see a bit of quite a bit of water between them. And it's one thing for an exiled uh, leader 
to air this and a very different one for it actually to be a to be a, to be a policy um yeah and i think the rca government i think knows where its bread is buttered and i think wouldn't pretty wouldn't try to go in that, that go down that route and in fact you know in large part there was a quite a positive relationship between novo and, and the mass and the armed forces for a long time you know uh they were the, the navy bolivia's navy all those landlocked as a navy they were very warm and very positive about what the Morales government was doing to try and get access back to the Pacific Ocean via Chile. The Air Force were given lots of fancy new planes, including a presidential Air Force One style plane. So so actually the idea that the Mas are incredibly inimically hostile to the armed forces, well, I, you know, doesn't have a lot of evidence behind it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to do the American thing of comparing everything to our own politics, but I can't help but be reminded of Sidney Powell saying that Venezuelans were behind the stolen presidential election last year. What we are really dealing with here is the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here in the United States. Mm. On the one hand, South America is a place that sees a lot more real election chicanery and political violence than we do in the U.S., but it's the same basic impulse, isn't it, to see communists behind every corner. But at least the Bolivian right uh, blamed Maduro, whereas the American right blamed Hugo Chavez, who who is no longer alive. Uh, (laughs) Well, Chavez vive, as we know. He vive forever. The Dominion voting systems and the software that goes in other computerized voting systems here as well were created in in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez. Yeah, so so at least in Bolivia they're updating their communist yeah. conspiracy tales. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and the fact that the fearsome Cuban security services can't even control their own domestic <laughs> right. situation perhaps might cast doubt on their ability to influence Bolivia's government thousands of miles away. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, it's it's widely known that, that Cuban spies are very influential in Venezuela and, and there's a very close economic and political relationship between their respective governments. But, but you know, beyond that, yeah. it's, it's kind of the birds, really. There's the other fact, then, that if you are discussing flying foreign mercenaries into your own country to overthrow the president, it probably helps your sense of moral righteousness to convince yourself that the other side is on the brink of doing the very same thing. Perhaps assuages some of the cognitive dissonance that that might produce otherwise. Yeah, and I don't think that... Lopez was burdened by much uh, appreciation or respect for for democracy to to begin with, because as as Lawrence said, he acknowledges on the calls uh, that that Arce won the election. You know, it wasn't particularly close. He won in a landslide. So this was not a situation where even privately, you know, former President Trump will tell anyone who will listen that he actually won the election. I don't know how whether he believes that or not, because he also then sometimes says that he got seventy three million votes which is not enough to have won. Uh, I don't know how he has <laughs> made that connection, if he's made that connection in his mind yet, but he does appear to at least keep a consistent line in, in private and in public, whereas whereas mm-hmm. Lopez you know, w- was not at all saying that, that Arce had illegitimately won. And in fact, in 2019, for, for people who didn't follow it closely, the opposition never claimed that Morales lost that election. The only thing that they claimed is that he won the election by less than 10 points because a 10-point margin would put him 
out of the runoff. So there would be no runoff and he would have won automatically. Mm -hmm. And they had been stoking fears ahead of time of election shenanigans and then brought people into the streets. But they were never saying that Morales didn't finish first in the election. Yeah, that's right. You know, whatever criticisms you want to make of them, the mass, and there have been a great many, you know, not least from leftist and indigenous sectors in Bolivia who, you know, were critical of the pretty bad environmental record, the critical of of certain signs towards a creeping authoritarianism, a sort of sense of too much power rested with Evo and not enough with the actual bases. You can't deny that the mass is the kind of largest political project in, in Bolivia. You know, it's got that reach. I mean, just as a kind of data point, like I remember in the election last year, I read a story that was talking about how in a good quarter of the local districts in Chukisaka, which is in the southern kind of altiplano of Bolivia, they were having to take ballot boxes on mules to, to go to these villages, you know. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of voters who's, who aren't picked up by the, you know, let's say the European descended Criollo political parties, but, but see, feel represented by them by the mass, even if they have their own criticisms and misgivings about this direction at times. But I think the common thread, just to bring it back to the US, is, is and, you know, without casting over my own country's uh, difficulties as a British person, right? Like we still got a bloody uh, monarch and <laughs> we have a monarchy in power. <laughs> but I see, I see a common thread in, in, in the sense that in certain American societies, and by that I mean Latin American, North American, there's a certain sense that certain voters are not worth the same as others, right? Like in the US case, it's, well, if, if, you, if you miss out Philadelphia and you miss out certain cities in the South, which of course might have a predominantly African-American population, then the, yeah, the GOP would have won and Trump would have won. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, likewise in Bolivia, oh sure, well if you, you know, of course the indigenous people and the, and, the, and the campesinos voted for mass, but they don't know what's good for them and they're easily led and, you know, there's a certain sense of, well, mass politics, participatory politics, doesn't actually, you know, uh, reflect the best interests of, of the country. And, and you know, you guys have that built into the US Constitution, right? The sense that rural inland states have that greater power in the Electoral College mm-hmm. or to, to the decadent, diverse uh, coastal cities, right? You know. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they're called in the Constitution, decadent, diverse coastal yeah. cities. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what Jefferson yes. uh, wrote, wasn't it? So um, there is a common, common thread there. Um, and it should be said that uh, Bolivia is a country with a, an indigenous majority. I think it's the only one in South America for which that's the case, or it certainly has the largest percentage of indigenous population. And for hundreds of years until 2006 had only European non-indigenous presidents. And you can see there's a, a fairly stark display of this at the what's called the House of Freedom in Sucre, which was the old colonial capital of Bolivia. I was there one year before Morales was deposed, and they have a room with portraits of all of the Bolivian presidents going back to colonial times. And um, it's just a long, long row of white faces, and then Evo at the end. Mm. It's kind of hard for us sometimes to appreciate quite how much of a shock to the system that was. You know, we had that, I, well, maybe people can appreciate it, because we, we, we had that same hallway here in the United States, if you, you know, look at the textbooks, 40 plus white guys followed by Barack Obama, and you did see an explosion of fear and paranoia and, and racism mm-hmm. that burst through in you know, 2009, 2010, that then Donald Trump really tapped into and, and made himself a political star by being the lead you know, champion of, of birtherism. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Although you, you imagine on top of that, if Obama had actually been the radical socialist that his critics accused mm-hmm. him of being, then you have something more like the uh, the Bolivian situation. Right. If he was Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> You talked to uh, Eduardo Gamara, who's a Bolivian political scientist. He's a professor at Florida International University. And he said he was talking about people like Joe Pereira, this guy who was promising all these mercenaries. He said, quote, these guys are a dime a dozen. They all think they're generals. They're dangerous because of what they promise. Conspiracies are generally just that, conspiracies, but they cause a lot of damage, especially in fragile places like Bolivia. All you need is one Pereira to mess things up. Mm. Yeah, I think he kind of put, put put the nail on the head there, right? I mean, I think re- reading our, our story, which I'll just insert here, you know, really was a team effort in terms of obviously uh, Ryan's reporting, but also incredible work uh, editing by Maya, who really helped put it together, Maya Hibbert. Um, yes. Fact checkers, translators, really great to work with the Intercept team on this one. So kudos to everyone involved. But you read the story and it, it, it seems crazy, right? It, it's like thousands of guys flying down and they've got one C-130. How are they going to all fit in, in that one plane? And, you know, how's this going to work? Well, that's how these coups often pan out, right? It's a couple of chances. And But if they get, and, and you know, Ryan made this point very well in the article, you know, you look at interventions in Guatemala, for example, other Latin American countries, the guys go in, they sow a bit of chaos, the military perceives the U.S. is is backing one side and then they kind of shift en masse. It doesn't take a lot a lot to really tip the scales. If professionalism was required in attempted regime change operations, well, the Bay of Pigs would have never happened, for example, <laughs> you know, back in the day. You know, Fidel wouldn't have been targeted with, with exploding cigars and, thing, and things like that. And I think it's worth saying at this point, well, we probed the U.S. government angle. Some special forces sources told a, a colleague of, of yours at The Intercept that they were aware of this plot in 2020, but they didn't think anything would come of it. Well, okay, we'll 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 take that uh, kind of as as read. But the beauty of these kind of things, and again, worth saying, in 2020, earlier in the year, in May, there was an attempted uh, invasion of Venezuela involving a couple of former Green Berets and some local Venezuelan sympathisers. It was again complete failure. The speedboats landed. They were attacked by sort of local security forces. I think some local fishermen even got involved in sort of repelling this invasion. They've later said, well, we were given a nod and a wink by the Trump administration, which the Trump administration denies. So there's a pattern of this stuff going on. And without saying the White House was involved in all of them, it very much suits them if they are a bit improvised and a bit crazy because they've got deniability and they can wash their hands of it if it goes terribly wrong. If it turns out and suits the cards settle and land in their, in their interests, well, great. They've got a back channel to the, to the ringleaders. And that is a real pattern throughout the past 70 years or so of, mm-hmm. of, of the U.S. sort of being okay with a particular plot going off and having the ability to win either way. You know, if it is the half-baked scheme that it seems like, then like Lawrence said, you wash your hands, you say, how outrageous was this? But then if it works, which once in a while it does, then everything changes. You come in and then it was a, it was a triumph of U.S. intervention. You know, like, like Lawrence said, in 1954 in, in Guatemala, it, it was a complete charade. It was a disaster almost from start to finish. But at, at the last moment, effectively, you know, Arbenz, Jacobo Arbenz, the Guatemalan president, just kind of lost his nerve and said, you know what, I could probably survive this, this coup attempt, but it does appear like the U.S. is behind it. Mm-hmm. But if I, fl- if I flee now, then I can definitely survive, not as president, but as a person. When you're faced with that decision, 
a lot of people are going to make it. And so that can, if you can create enough chaos and create the sense that the U.S. is behind it somehow, then sometimes people just give up. Yeah. Um, happened in Iran too. To, you know, to, to, quote, uh, to quote Game of Thrones, power resides where men believe it resides. <laughs> and that's often, that often ends up being really critical in these sorts of things, it seems, where if you can just create the impression that things are moving in one direction, you can will that into reality. You know, in this case, we had a military that was clearly very afraid of reprisals from MAS if they came back to power. And you can very much imagine that if they, if they had successfully crafted a compelling narrative that yeah. something was materializing, yeah. that military leaders would have started to come to their side. Oh, did, yeah, did, did, you know, definitely. In, in the other audios we have between um, Pereira and one of his uh, colleagues, seemingly in the interior ministry or the police or the army, you know, he talks about, well, the plan is we're going to seize these uh, strategic points. We're going to make a show of force, you know, with these highly trained, highly equipped commandos, basically. And then once that's perceived by the military, the police, and and also by what he calls kind of civil groups, but these are basically kind of right wing militias, which kind of operated throughout much of, of the past eighteen months in Bolivia. Once they see that okay, this, this stuff shit's going down, right? Yeah, they'll join in. You know there was a very real threat that something could have happened. And I think I'd go so far as to say that the threat is not entirely diminished. You know, I think there are still some very hostile elements within the armed forces in Bolivia to Arce. I think he has replaced the high command. A lot of the, I guess worth saying at this point, that Lopez is in exile in Brazil. He, the Bolivian authorities have opened an investigation into him, a separate investigation because he's already wanted in connection with this mass corruption case involving the import of tear gas at a vastly inflated price from Miami. Again, why does it always go through Miami? Um, who knows? Um, um, <laughs> a lot of and, good international flights into Miami. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, you can't move for the tear gas and the mercenaries at the um, at the airport there. But um, <laughs> it's a nightmare if you're behind them at security. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure. Um, but but so so Lopez is in exile in Brazil. Maria who was Anya's interior minister and who was mentioned in one of these calls but it's not clear whether or not he's involved or not he seems to have had his own scheme going on he's actually been captured by the FBI in the US and is kind of being questioned in connection with this tear gas case the generals who are mentioned in, in our audios have been replaced or are under investigation or again have fled the country one of them is in Colombia so you know, the, that immediate threat has subsided. Uh, you know, and, and this is a trend in Bolivian politics. It, go, it goes back almost to 18, 1825, right, when it, when the country was, was, was created. The army is this kind of institution which just rules the roost, and all these presidents come from the armed forces. And I think RC will probably be stepping quite carefully. Yeah, and to bring things full circle, this might be what the behind-the-scenes phone calls would have sounded like in Haiti, if we could have heard the people plotting the assassination there. Yeah, and with this one, it, it seemed like events on the ground undermined the the planning. Like, they, they needed some level. They didn't anticipate of, the size of his victory in the election. Right, they didn't anticipate the size of the victory. And they, and they needed some level of public legitimacy. When they took Evo out in 2019, they had managed to fill the street with protesters who had a, a variety of different grievances, but on the back of that, were then able to push him out and seize power. Mm -hmm. As it became just increasingly clear that there had been such an overwhelming victory, you saw the same thing happen in the United States. Joe Biden's 7 million vote victory, just kind of in the public's mind, put to bed the whole notion that this was still a contested election, even as 
the outgoing president continued to push it in the courts and push it on, on cable news or wherever mm -hmm. else he could, there was just a, a sense that you could feel that it was over. And my sense is that the same kind of certainty among the public in Bolivia that this was over made it very difficult for Lopez and Pereira and the others to round up the co-conspirators that they would have needed. Definitely, yeah. I and, mean, you know, worth also saying that if this coup had kind of uh, been attempted or happened, Bolivians wouldn't have taken it lying down. There are very boisterous, very powerful right. uh, mining unions who have ready access to a lot of dynamite and aren't afraid to use it in demonstrations. In fact, miners beat to death a junior minister of, of Eva, Eva Morales a few years ago, very, very tragically, in a sort of dispute over pay. And, you know, sure, there are a couple of guns floating around, a couple of shotguns, you know, who knows. But it would have been a very uneven contest and a lot of blood would have been spilled. And that was what really, I think, concerned me before the election in particular about how dangerous this could have been. We could have seen a repeat of the massacres in 2019, but it would have been very difficult to, for them to impose their preferred candidate. And in one of the audios, they seem to make a joke or a suggestion that that candidate would have been Lopez himself mm -hmm. um, against the will of the Bolivian people, you know, so clearly expressed in that electoral margin. You know, the mass beats all in that first round vote. It, vote, it beats all the other candidates combined. And what's also unique about Bolivian politics is the geography of La Paz. Not only is it one of the highest cities or maybe the highest major city in the world, but there are only really a few ways in and out. And so what that means is that a dedicated band of five to 10,000 protesters can shut the city down. And that has acted throughout the years as something of a democratic check in a way against government excesses. It's how Morales came to power in the first place. He shut down the city in 2005 and forced the resignation of Carlos Mesa, who, who ran again in this most recent election, right, Lawrence? Um, yeah, yeah. They could have done that again if they had attempted this coup without pulling it off immediately and with some public support. Well, any mercenaries that wanted to pull off an operation in La Paz would have to deal with altitude sickness, too, if they're coming from the U.S. <laughs> oh, well, there's that as well. You know, yeah. It's not fun. If you see, um, you know, Boca or, or River, they get when they go and play in La Paz against, let's say, you know, um, fairly uh, middling average teams like, you know, the strongest or whoever, it's, it's you know, 4-1 victories to, to the Bolivian teams, right? <laughs> Which are strangely reversed when they, when they play back in uh, Buenos Aires. But yeah, you've got to reckon with that altitude sickness. All right. Well, Ryan, Lawrence, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Thank you, Zach. That was Ryan Grimm and Lawrence Blair. Before we go, a quick update on our show from last week. In that episode, Ryan talked with attorney and law professor Zephyr Teachout about the Biden administration's antitrust policy. They discussed some of his key appointments and speculated about who he might name to head the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. Here's what Zephyr had to say about one leading candidate, the antitrust lawyer Jonathan Cantor. Jonathan Cantor is the leading candidate from the wing of thinking about anti-monopoly that says fairness matters. It's more than consumer welfare, and we've been under-enforcing. We've just been asleep at the wheel while there have been uh, all these mergers and asleep at the wheel during decades of uncompetitive practice. That was last week. And this week? Google is battening down the hatches for a legal storm. The Biden administration's new Department of Justice antitrust nominee has a history of representing companies 
that have sued the search engine giant. This move to nominate Jonathan Cantor is the latest sign that the administration is preparing a broad crackdown on big tech. Big tech faces a big headache in terms of the Department of Justice and the antitrust division. Putting Cantor in charge of the DOJ antitrust division is the latest sign that the Biden administration is planning to seriously scrutinize the big tech companies. If and when they take action on that front, you can be sure we'll discuss it here. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. I'm Zach Young. I produce the show. It was mixed by Brian Pugh. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.